Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The portion of God's word that we'll use for the sermon today are the three lessons that we read earlier as we begin this new sermon series called Asking for a Friend. You can probably imagine that through uh, the course of the years that a person serves in a capacity like pastor, uh, they might hear quite a few questions that get repeated over and over and over again. What I tried to do in this sermon series that will span the next few weeks is ask some of those same questions that have been asked of me that I know that people were maybe just even a little uncomfortable asking the questions. So it's why we titled the sermon series, Asking for a Friend. You're familiar with that phrase, right? The idea of asking for a friend. If there's something that, a question that you want to ask that seems to be just a little bit embarrassing or maybe a little bit awkward to ask, you might, after asking the question, tell someone that you're asking for a friend, right? It's not really you that needs to know that, but, but there's somebody else that you know that wants to know. You know, things like this. Maybe our students might ask someone a question, can you drop out of college without your parents knowing? Asking for a friend. Or how do I play a prank on my roommate or my boss without getting caught? I'm asking for a friend. I saw this one this week that I thought was kind of interesting. Can you make bacon with your hair straightener? Asking for a friend. I have no idea. <laughs> or this one. How soon can you take a nap after waking up in the morning? 15 minutes or a half an hour? Asking for a friend, right? You get the idea, right? When we have that phrase added, this asking for a friend, you want to make it seem like it's somebody else besides you. Well, that's a good way to approach these questions that we're asking of God to. Although we don't need to be embarrassed to ask the questions, we certainly can ask these things and dig into the scriptures. Look at what God says to try and find the answers that we desire. Today we're going to look at this one. Why does God let bad things happen? I bet you've probably heard someone ask that question or at least wonder about that, right? As you look around our world, we know the saying, you maybe are familiar with the saying that a Christian mantra, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. But if we're really honest and we look around the world, isn't it hard to defend that sometimes? When you look at the troubles and the difficulties and all the bad things that go on in this world, how can we say that God is in control, that, that God is good all the time, that, that none of this bad stuff is his fault? Maybe we just simply ask that question, why? Why does this, all this stuff go on? Maybe we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus did tell us that in this world we would have troubles. And yet, finding out what purpose God could possibly have in letting these troubles come is an important question to wrestle with as Christians. And it's important for us to have an answer as other people seek answers to those questions as well. So today, as we think about that question, why does God let bad things happen? We'll use those three readings from Genesis 3, from Romans 8, and from Luke 13 to answer these sub-questions that sort of get us to the answer to the big question. Why the fall into sin? Why did God let Adam and Eve fall into sin? Second one, why doesn't he stop the evil in the world? And then the third question, what about my own suffering, the suffering that comes into my life? Let's start with the first one. Why the fall into sin? The Bible tells us pretty clearly that God is holy, that God is perfect. 
And because God is holy and perfect, he cannot be the source or the cause of the evil that is in this world. And yet, even having said that, we know that God could have stopped the evil from coming into this world if he wanted. So why didn't he just create a world in which there wasn't any sin, that there wasn't any consequences, that there wasn't any suffering or pain? You know the answer to that, don't you? He did. That's the world that he originally created, right? At the end of the sixth day of creation, when God was done creating, he looked at his entire creation and do you remember what he said? He said, it's very good. The creation was perfect. It was exactly how God wanted it to be. It was without trouble. It was without suffering. It was without any pain. Sometime after that sixth day of creation and before Satan visited Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent, Satan and his evil angels rebelled against God. The Bible is short on details when it comes to that, but something happened that there was a rebellion in heaven and Satan and the evil angels were cast out. From that point forward, Satan set out to destroy the perfect world that God had created. And God created Adam and Eve in a very, very unique way. He created them with a free will. He gave Adam and Eve the choice to move from a created innocence. They were created holy and perfect to something that they would do by their own choosing. That free will made them worshipers. They could express their love for God in ways that they would not have been able to without that free will. Maybe the best illustration that I can use for this is if you've ever seen a doll that has one of those little pull strings on it or maybe you press it and it, it makes sounds. If that doll says to you, I love you, that's a pretty empty love, isn't it? The thing was programmed to say that and if you pull the string enough times, it will continue to say it over and over and over again. But there's no meaning behind those words. Well, God created Adam and Eve with a free will so that they could express their love for God. And here's how they did it. God gave them every tree, every tree in the Garden of Eden from which they could eat. But there was one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he asked them, commanded them not to eat from. Why? Because standing at that tree and refusing to eat of that tree was Adam's way and Eve's way to worship God. Think about this with me just for a minute. When Adam went to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, God, you've given us this beautiful garden and everything else in this garden we can have. We can eat from every other tree, but you've asked us not to eat from this one tree and out of love for everything else that you've given us, we will listen to what you've asked us to do. Martin Luther had an interesting way of describing this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said it was Adam's church. It was his altar. It was his pulpit. It was the place that Adam could go to demonstrate his love for God. And so God's creation of Adam and Eve with that free will was a risk, wasn't it? He knew that they could choose not to worship him too. And we read exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan came, tempting Adam and Eve, telling them that they were missing something. That if they would only eat of this tree that God didn't want them to eat from, then they would truly know. They would truly be like God, knowing good and evil. And he was kind of right, wasn't he? 
they did know evil. They was now something that they had experienced. And they also knew good. They knew good as something that had been lost. They instantly hid from God, tried to cover themselves, made excuses. Sin brought some ugly consequences with it. Yes, that day, that day that was described in Genesis chapter 3, the fall into sin was a day of disaster. Disaster not just for Adam and Eve, but for every single person who has come after them. The sin of Adam and Eve has been passed down to you and to me too. But it also affected creation. The whole creation is now in disorder and chaos. What God made perfect is no longer so. And so we have natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes, floods, because the world is not the way God wants it to be. The whole creation is groaning, is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. Groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's not just the creation that was affected. We are affected too. The sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, from our own parents, leads us to make bad choices, sinful choices. And sometimes those sinful choices cause us pain too, or the bad choices of other people cause pain. Again, we could ask the question, why? Why did God allow this to happen? And we can search the scriptures to find a meaningful answer, but God doesn't ever directly answer that question. And yet he doesn't leave us without answers. Think about this for just a second with me. You're God. You create a world exactly how you want it to be. You conclude at the end of the creation that it is very good. And then the people that you put on earth and gave the choice to cause sin to come into the world. What's your reaction? Wouldn't it be tempting as God to simply say, I'm wiping them out and starting over? But that's not what God did, is it? While God is not the source of evil and responsible for evil in this world, he did something about it. He did something to undo the evil that had been brought into this world. God made a promise. A promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Romans chapter 5, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Adam is the one man who brought sin. Jesus is the one who brings righteousness. It's through Jesus' life lived in our place. It's through Jesus' death on the cross that God undid the evil that was brought into this world redeemed you and me and made us his own children. That's the first encouragement I'd like you to take from our sermon today. That God is not the source of evil. And yet, in his love, in his love for all people, he promised a Savior who would defeat it. I said that there isn't necessarily a direct answer as to why God does all of the things that he does in Scripture. So I'm going to use this illustration that I first read in a, a, a story by a man named Lee Strobel, the author Lee Strobel. You might recognize that name. He wrote the book, The Case for Christ. He described it this way. If you've ever driven in a heavy fog at night, and, and maybe some of you can relate to that. You're driving along and you can't see five feet in front of you. You don't want to slow down because you're afraid somebody might hit you from behind. You don't want to go too fast because you can't see what's in front of you. You can barely see the lines that keep you in the middle of the road. And then all of a sudden, you come up 
on a truck. A truck whose taillights shine bright even through the fog. And maybe he has some fog lights in front because he seems to know right where he's going and he seems to be going at a pretty good speed and you just follow. You follow that truck. Even though you can't see everything around you, you trust the person that you're following. You see, God doesn't give us every answer to every question that we ever have. But he certainly enlightens us. He gives us points of light to look at, points of light to consider as we walk through the scriptures to see what's God doing when he allows suffering into this world. And so we know who we follow. We follow a God who loves us so much that he promised his own son to be our savior from sin. And we know God calls his word a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this question. Why, if God could, why doesn't he stop evil? We know he could, right? The Bible tells us that God is love. And the Bible tells us that God has all power. So doesn't it stand to reason if a God truly loves us and if he has all power to stop everything bad from ever happening, he should, right? That's the conclusion that Satan would love for you and me to draw. That one of those two things and only one of those two things could be true. That's Satan's big lie. That if some trouble visits our world or visits your life or mine, that something is off with God. Either he isn't as loving as he said he was or he's not as powerful as he said he is because otherwise that trouble simply wouldn't happen in my life, right? Here's what God teaches in his word. He teaches us that there's another option. That there isn't something off with God, but that God has a good purpose in allowing suffering in this world. This other option that we have, so important for us to think about, so important for us to delve into in the scriptures, because it's impossible to answer this question otherwise. Why does God allow bad things? Well, let's take a look at what he says in his word. The first reason that his word gives us is those troubles, the trials, The evils in this world, they actually serve to draw us to Jesus. The Apostle Paul talks about a trouble that visited his life. He has a special name for it. He actually calls it his thorn in the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he's pleading with God to take that thorn, to take that suffering away from him. Do you remember what God answered? God said this to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Does it make sense that when we have things that go wrong in this world, when not everything is under my control and my power, when suffering happens, if I'm turned to the source of all strength, my Savior Jesus, that's a good thing? God wants us to be drawn to Jesus as the one whose grace covers all things for us too. Second reason that the Bible gives us for God allowing suffering is the idea of refining, of working on our character, chiseling us and molding us into the people that he wants us to be. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrote this, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint when god allows things to enter into our lives he wants us 
to stay focused. He wants us to see that he has something so much better waiting for us. A third reason that the Bible gives is that God uses troubles to keep us close to him so that we don't wander too far away from him. The Bible even has a special name for that. It says that God disciplines those he loves. Maybe some of you are familiar with that word discipline. Maybe it takes you back to your childhood, right? Discipline was meant to be training. My wife and I agreed on the way that we disciplined most times, and we tried not to do a lot of spanking of our children. We tried to find other ways to demonstrate to them that what they were doing was wrong. However, I will tell you, there are a couple of times when my children put themselves in such danger that I had no choice but to teach them that if they continued to do that, there would be bad consequences. We lived on a busy street when my uh, two oldest children were young, and one time, one of them, I don't remember which one, was running out into the street. And I grabbed them, and I remember just without even thinking, just giving them a little spanking. And my thought process was, if I don't inflict a little bit of pain, they will not realize that the next time they run out into the street, they might not be so lucky. There might be a car coming. Maybe you have to teach your children not to put their hand on top of the stove. It's hot on top of the stove, right? And so if they try to reach up there when the stove is hot, you might slap their hand just a little bit just to remind them something worse could happen. That's God's picture in discipline too. The writer to the Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 12. He says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. God wants us to not wander too far away from him, to not run out into the spiritual street where there's danger, but instead to keep us next to him and on the path to an eternity in heaven. Finally, Romans chapter 8 gives us a reason that God allows suffering to come into our life too. He promises to use everything for our good. That's what Romans 8.28 says, In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is for us, Paul says. And if that's true, if God's power is for us, then there is nothing that can be against us. I'm going to give you some unsolicited advice. If you're struggling with suffering, or if you know somebody who is, if this question why keeps popping up in your life and in the life of people that you know, Will you direct them to Romans chapter 8? Or find comfort in Romans 8 yourself? What a beautiful section of scripture. Not only does God not bring suffering into our lives for bad purposes, he uses it for good, but we have a God who is on our side. And if you need proof of God's love, Paul gives us that in Romans chapter 8 too. This same God who nothing can stand against didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Just marvel at that for a second. God did not spare. Jesus took nails for you and for me to give us the forgiveness of sins and the eternal life that we need. And if God loved us so much to do that, then it stands to reason that he'll be with us through the troubles and the struggles and the trials that we face too. That's why Paul could conclude that entire section in Romans 8 with these words, nothing not anything that happens in this life can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is the second truth I'd like you to take from the sermon today, that God promises he will use the sufferings of his people to accomplish something good. I know it's hard. You look around this world and you see things like school shootings and human trafficking and and starvation and disease, and you wonder how in the world can God be in control? The answer to the question is found in God's promises, that in all things he works for the good of those who love him. Don't you wish we could see that? Don't you wish every time some suffering came into my life, God would also give me the roadmap to show me exactly why he allowed that to happen? Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But every once in a while, God does give us that blessing. And a great example of that in Scripture is the story of Joseph. And he gets to the end of his life and Joseph looks back on the life that he had and all of the troubles that God allowed him to suffer through. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Falsely accused and imprisoned for a couple of years, then forgotten in jail. Separated from his family for a couple of decades. And then at the end of his life, as he's talking to his brothers who are worried that he still wants to get revenge, he says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph could look back on his life and see the good purpose that God had in directing his life to Egypt, putting him in a position where he could save the lives of his brothers during the famine, and then save you and me too because through that family line came the promised Savior. Even if, even if God doesn't give us the answers to why we're suffering, he gives us his love, his love for us in Jesus and says, nothing can separate you from that love. Let's take a look at the last question. What about my own suffering? And this is where suffering really takes on, I suppose, a little bit more of a, a, a deeper meaning because when it hits close to home, that's when it really bothers us, right? When, when the suffering is in my own life, when it's not something outside of me, but it's happening to me or to someone that I love. You see, we kind of naturally think what, what Jesus described in Luke chapter 13, we kind of naturally think this, that if I'm good, God is going to reward me. And if I do something wrong, then I can expect some sort of punishment, right? Have you asked the question, why? Why is God doing this? Why is he letting this into my life? That's where that comes from. And maybe we even have this thought that, that, that God is sort of sitting up in heaven and he's watching our lives unfold and he sees us make some bad and sinful choices and, and he decides to kind of cook up whatever he can, some troubles to send to us and then he sends them so that we suffer. Is that how God operates? I can tell you with 100% certainty that the answer to that is no. That's not how God operates. Jesus proves that in the gospel lesson when he says, do you think those people that Pilate killed, do you think that the people who died when the tower fell on them, do you think that somehow they were worse sinners than everybody else? No, God doesn't act in that way and why not? Why not? Because he already punished someone in your place. God doesn't need to punish you or me for sin because somebody else already suffered that punishment and that somebody is Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, There is now no condemnation, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. The punishment for your sins, the price that needed to be paid for your sins is already paid. It was paid in the blood of God's own Son. 
And so when we look at God's word, we know that God is truly love. He sent his only son, didn't spare his only son. That God is truly all-powerful. He's powerful. He is mighty. He can do all things. Nothing can stand in his way. We know that God is good. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So when suffering comes into your life and mine, here's what God would encourage you and me to do. Instead of wondering if God is truly loving and God is truly all-powerful, let's ask this question. What, God, are you trying to help me see? What, God, are you trying to help me learn? What benefit does this suffering bring into my life? And, and maybe there'll be answers that you'll see. And maybe we'll just simply have to say, all right, God, you are God and I'm not. But God wants us to focus. Focus on him. To place our troubles on him. To cast all our anxiety there because we know that he cares for us. What God wants for you and me is to cast our attention not on ourselves and the troubles that we're going through, but on him and the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. What God uses troubles to do is to direct us to his love. Love that extends far beyond life in this world. Love that will be lasting forever, for an eternity. That's the final truth I'd like you to take from the sermon today, that God, God doesn't punish us with suffering because he already punished Jesus in our place. Maybe you recognize these words from the familiar Psalm, Psalm 23, where King David writes this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then the final verse of that psalm says this, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's God's promise to you and me. Love that will last forever, long beyond anything that this world can do to us. Here's some takeaways from our sermon today. Number one, God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to undo the damage of the fall. Yes, God is not the source of evil. But he did something about it when evil came into the world. Number two, God promises to work for good in all things, even our sufferings. And if God is for us, there is nothing that can be against us. And then finally, number three, he didn't spare his own son. Jesus took all our sufferings to the cross to assure us that something better is prepared for us, our life with him forever in heaven. If there's a greater lyric to any Christian song or hymn, I'm not sure what it is. But I love this verse from this hymn, Amazing Grace. Do you remember that John Newton penned it this way? When we've been there, talking about heaven, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Eternity is hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Something that goes on and on and on. But what a beautiful description. And here's what you can take with you today. If you have a horrible day, a bad week, a rough year, maybe a lifetime that's filled with suffering, that's a drop in the bucket in comparison to eternity. Day after day after day in the perfection of heaven, a place where God tells you and me that there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. And so yes, Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble. But he adds this thought, take heart. I have overcome 
the world. And so in Jesus, you have an eternity that's assured of you. If you ask the question, why, do, why does this suffering, why does these bad things come into our life, maybe turn the question around and say, do I know for sure, can I know for sure that through Jesus I have eternal life with him in heaven? And God's answer is a resounding yes. My son did everything to take your place. You're my child. You're an heir of eternal life. You're loved. And you don't even have to ask that question for a friend because God tells you you're his and you belong. Amen. Peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.